0: Good morning. It's a joy for me to open God's word with you this morning. Does the Bible overpromise and underdeliver? Does the Bible promise more than it can deliver on? I wonder if you like me have heard preaching that offers promises to people in this life of material blessing, prosperity, health, that makes you nervous as a Christian. Such preaching, such a prosperity gospel, a gospel that promises from the Bible that your life will be your best life now should make you suspicious. And those of us who know our Bibles a little better know that the Bible also promises other things if we are to follow Christ. That we are to follow Him by taking up our cross accepting with all of the blessings that we'll have in eternity, a life in this world that may be full of trials, that may be full of difficulties, that may even be full of persecutions. But what are we to do with passages in the Scripture that sound like they are promising all of the world's pleasures to the Christian, to those that are God's people? Well, if there's one book that prosperity preachers like to go to, it is the book of Proverbs. In fact, there are passages in the book of Proverbs, including the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, that sound like such over-promising. What are we to do with such passages? I was in Barnes & Noble a couple of weeks ago. And I found on the shelves in the Christian section a book by Stephen Scott called The Richest Man Who Ever Lived, King Solomon's Secrets to Success, Wealth, and Happiness. There are people who are offering from the book of Proverbs a life for Christians of success and wealth and happiness in this life. He says on the first page, chapter one, how the richest man who ever lived can make you happier, more successful, and wealthier. And he says, citing his own experience, this. Imagine going from a below average wage to a personal income of more than 600000 per month. Imagine losing nine jobs in your first six years after college, and then on your tenth job, building more than a dozen multi-million dollar businesses from scratch. Achieving sales of billions of dollars. Imagine doing all of this by following specific steps taught by Solomon in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. In a nutshell, that is my personal story. He says a couple of pages in that all we need to do is crack the Solomon Code. All we need to do is read Proverbs through his code that he offers to Christians. So, does Proverbs offer to the Christian more than it can deliver on? Or as one writer put it, does Proverbs teach a prosperity gospel? Or as another writer put it, does Proverbs promise more than it can give? Well, we are looking this morning at Proverbs chapter 3, and we'll look at the first half of the chapter. Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs 3, verses 1 to 12. We've been looking at Proverbs for a few weeks now, And we saw that Proverbs is God's education course in true wisdom. We learned in verses 1-7 to that wisdom begins with God and with the fear of God, with seeing all of life in light of our Creator God. We saw in the second half of chapter 1 that if we are to be a a student of wisdom, that we must have a distinguishing ear, the ability to tell the difference between the voice of wisdom and the voice of foolishness. We saw in chapter 2 just last week that true wisdom involves valuing wisdom because it leads us to God, realizing that God himself is the ultimate reward, the most important thing. Well, this week we'll be looking at Proverbs 3, verses 1 to 12, a passage that holds out to the student of wisdom the blessings that wisdom has to offer. We'll be looking at these blessings that wisdom has to offer. And our main point, if you're taking notes, is this. Main point is this. The wise trust God and receive blessing. The wise trust God and receive blessing. The wise trust God and receive blessing. blessing. And we'll have three points from our text Verses 1 to 8, blessing. Verses 9 and 10, money. And verses 11 and 12, discipline. Blessing, money, and discipline. And it's my hope that this morning we would see wisdom's blessings and seek the giver of such good gifts. And even more, I hope that we as a church would be a people who trust the Lord and demonstrate that trust By clinging to His Word and clinging to the Savior. For our Savior is the wise Son, through whom all blessings, all true blessings come. Let's read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Read along with me as I read the whole passage as we begin. Proverbs 3. This is God's Word. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves Him whom He loves... As a father, the son in whom he delights. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. As we begin our first section, section number 1, blessing. Notice, if you will, in our passage that there is a structure. A structure that holds the whole passage together. And a structure that is repeated from verse to verse. There is a structure here, as you'll see, of beginning with a command or an instruction, followed by a promise of blessing. Command and blessing. You see it there in verses 1 and 2. My son, don't forget my teaching. We see in the, the first a command. In the negative, to not forget my teaching. And then turned around in the positive, let your heart keep my commandments. And then do you see what follows? A blessing for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. We'll see that this pattern continues. There's a command, there's an instruction to follow, and then a promise of blessing that would follow. Do this, don't do this is the command. And then the blessing for, or so, or and, or then, you will receive blessing. My hope is that as we read through these and see the different commands and promises of blessing that I can provide you with a few clues that will help you not only in understanding this passage but in understanding Proverbs as a whole. Let's look at this first section, verses 1 and 2. The command begins to remember the teaching of wisdom from the wise father. To remember the teaching of wisdom from a wise father. Do not forget let your heart keep my commandments. With the command to remember is then the following command to not only keep the commands, to not only obey the instruction, but he talks about our hearts being involved in this. That the instruction for the wise son, the wise student of wisdom, isn't just that they obey the commands of wisdom or follow the instructions, but to have their hearts involved. Do You know that when God speaks to His people, commands. They are coming out of love, out of His desire for us to know Him, to know something of what He is like. But His desire isn't just for us to obey like robots some rote commands, but to have our hearts engaged in understanding who He is, in loving Him, and having hearts that seek to obey Him. Hearts that then lead to actions, to obedience that comes out of a heart that is full of love for God. Do you see the the promise that follows? Length of days, years of life. There's a promise of long life, of peace. The second half of verse 2, peace they will add to you. What are we to do with such promises? Well, the first clue... And In interpreting Proverbs is clue number one, is this. Proverbs are generally true statements. Proverbs are generally true statements. Proverbs are not promises, though they may sound at times like promises. They are not even laws, though they may sound at, time like, at times like laws. Proverbs are generally true statements about life in this world, and about life and relationship with God. So before you take a verse, like Proverbs 3.1 and 3.2, and begin running in your mind to exceptions to this rule, or exceptions to this proverb, step back for a minute and ask the question, well, is this proverb generally true? Think about it. Do those who follow wisdom's path do those who follow God's commands, in general, do they have lives that are long? Do they have lives that are peaceful? Well, by and large, those that are in a loving relationship with God, those that follow the path of wisdom, in general, are people that don't have their lives cut short by sin, right? Think of the the, the, the evil men from chapter 1 and chapter 2 who are bent on doing evil and who are bent on killing others, Stealing and robbing. Compare such an evil man with the righteous man, with the, the wise man or woman who pursues wisdom in a relationship with God. How often are wise people having their lives cut short by their evil pursuits? Well, they aren't. So we can see in this first section that it is generally true that those that pursue wisdom and listen to wisdom's teaching and who have hearts that desire to obey God, they will have lives that are generally long and peaceful. Let me encourage you, if you're here this morning and you're a young person, if you are youthful, get to know those that are older in the congregation. Get to know those that are older and wise, those that have lived faithful lives and can share with you something of their experience who can share with you something of the faithfulness of God that they've experienced day in and day out, year in and year out, and can help you as you're young and only have a short perspective of a handful of years to see life from a long perspective, from the perspective of decades. Let me encourage you, older members, to realize that you have an ability to benefit our congregation by sharing with them The experience that you've had of God's faithfulness to you year in and year out. Through the years, through the seasons of life, and through the decades. You have, even if your life hasn't been faithful at every point, you have a perspective on life, a perspective on God's faithfulness that is a longer perspective than those that are younger. Let me encourage you to bring younger people into your life. To share with them stories of God's faithfulness. To share with them the lessons that you've learned from listening to God and following the path of wisdom. You see here that that the command is to remember, to not forget. Let me encourage you, Christian, to realize that we are a forgetful people. That if we don't remind ourselves to remember, we will forget. If we go through life and don't build into our lives remembrances, times in our day, in our week, in our seasons of life, to remember what God has written in His Word, we will forget it. And we will begin living by other teaching and other ideas. This world is bombarding you with ideas, with facts, with assertions. We must be reminding ourselves of what God puts in His Word and of the wisdom that is here and available to us. Let's look at verses 3 to 4, this next section. Look at the next set of command and and offer a blessing. There's the command in verse 3, to not let steadfast love or faithfulness forsake you. So here is a command in the passive. To not allow steadfast love or faithfulness to forsake you or to get away from you. And then the active command of binding them around your neck and writing them on the tablet of your heart. What are these commands of holding on to steadfast love and faithfulness? Well, these terms are are covenant terms. They're they're terms used in, in the covenant relationship that God has made with his people. God has established here in the Old Testament a covenant with his people. It happened at Mount Sinai. He delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai and he established a covenant with them. You remember Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the tablets of stone of the Ten Commandments. And then receiving from God all of the commands that he had for his people. God was entering into a relationship with Israel, with his people, through a covenant. And then he called his people. As he was going to keep his covenant to them, he called them to keep the covenant with him. And he gave them a list of commands and promises of blessing. He gave them, in the Old Covenant, a list of promises, of things that they would have if they were to obey the Old Covenant. All of the wonderful promises of blessing but then also a list of promises of cursing if they were to disobey him. Here we have the instruction for these Old Testament saints, for these Israelite saints, to not allow steadfast love and faithfulness to the covenant to get away from them. To not walk away from the covenant that God had made with them and that they had made with their God, but to pursue covenant faithfulness and covenant love for their God. It even gets stronger. He says, do whatever it takes. Bind these things around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, this is metaphorical language. What's interesting is that in the New Testament, you see that the Pharisees took this literally, and they were literally binding things on their body to try to obey these commands. They were attaching these phylacterites to their foreheads. Literally doing whatever the passage said, in a literal way, but actually forgetting the point of it. And you see that the, the irony in the Gospels is that the religious leaders, who seem so religious, are regularly disobeying clear commands from the Old Testament, though they are obeying little letters of the law here and there by binding things around their neck, binding things on their foreheads. But what is the point here? What is this metaphorical language teaching? Well... That you need to do whatever it takes to be committed to the love that you have for your covenant God and to be faithful to Him. And what then is the blessing that is promised? Well, the the blessing of favor and success. The blessing of a good reputation, both in the sight of God and in the sight of man. It's interesting, as you notice here, What is the first thing that is promised? Favor and good success in the sight of God. So often what we want in this life is success in the eyes of man, first and foremost. The writer of Proverbs puts success and favor in the eyes of God as the most important thing. But then also success in the eyes of man as a byproduct. As you consider interpreting such Proverbs, let me give you a second clue for interpreting Proverbs. Realize that Proverbs are situational proverbs are situational that is the proverbs are speaking into specific situations and each proverb has its own context and as you apply this principle to this passage realize that this is a proverb written under the old the terms of the old covenant these are promises of blessing that are offered to Israelites under the old covenant And that there was, under the Old Covenant, a different way of relating to God and of relating to the world. God's plan for Israel was that they would be a light to the nations, as they would display God's blessing to them in the land, an actual land. And that the blessing that they received from God as they were faithful to Him would then be a light to the Gentiles. Would then be like a neon sign saying, look at this God. Who takes care of these people so well? Don't you want to know Him? Don't you want to enter into relationship with Him? But realize that Proverbs are situational. But as we back up and consider this generally true proverb, this generally true statement, is it true that those who are wise, that those who pursue God in general will have a good reputation with Him? Absolutely. And is it even further true that those that pursue wisdom will have a good reputation with men, with men and women around, even if people may make fun of you for being a Christian and for being wise and for pursuing a relationship with God, even if they mock you. Do you know that deep in their hearts there will be a respect for you, that that mocking and that that poking fun is actually hiding? Jesus in Matthew and Peter in 1 Peter says that there are those who will mock you, but the way that you live your life faithfully, the way that you live your life with wisdom faithfully will actually turn the hearts of some and make them want to know this God, to know this Jesus, and will one day lead to their salvation so that they will also glorify God with you, glorify Christ with you forever. Let's look at our, our next section, verses 5 to 8. Look at this next set of commands and promise of blessing. We have here maybe the most famous verses in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. We have here a a command in the positive first to trust the Lord with all your heart. And then in the negative to not rely on your own understanding. You see that they're two sides of the same coin. And what is the promised blessing here? God making straight your paths. God giving you guidance. God leading and guiding you in the way of truth and in the way of life. Look at the next section. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So a command, similar to the, the previous one, of not being wise in your own eyes, actually accepting God as the wise one and trusting Him, following Him, and another promise of blessing, the promise of, it says, healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Here's a third clue for reading Proverbs, a third clue for reading Proverbs as we consider these verses. Proverbs use poetical language and use metaphors. Proverbs use poetical language and metaphors. Look at these Phrases here in verse 8, healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. This is metaphorical language using physical language to describe something a bit more than mere physical things. We'll see if you study Psalms and Proverbs and wisdom language that very often physical language will be used as a metaphor for something deeper, for something, something below the surface, Think of the opposite of this. In the book of Psalms, you'll have psalmists who are writing out of their discouragement, and they'll talk about their bones wasting away. They'll talk about physical language to describe what's happening in their souls, to describe what's happening inside of them. The same thing is happening here. The the writer of Proverbs is using physical language to describe something much deeper and much richer. What does he mean here? Well, he means that for those who are... Those who are wise, who fear the Lord, who turn away from evil, they will be refreshed in their spirit and they will have a vitality in their lives that will actually shine through even in their physical appearance. The New Testament talks about the joy of a clean conscience as well as the opposite. Those that get so discouraged with evil and with guilt. I don't know how many of you read some of these pieces of literature in high school. I know I read both of them. Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart or Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. These are fascinating books that actually talk about the opposite of this. What happens to the soul of a person who's dealing with a guilty conscience? It eats them up from the inside out. It destroys their life. The writer of Proverbs is saying the opposite. Those that pursue wisdom, those that trust the Lord and fear Him and reject evil, to live lives of righteousness, they will have the joy of a clean conscience. And it will so enrich and enliven their lives that you will be able to see it even in their appearance. As you consider these commands and blessings in this section, do you realize that God promises to guide His people as they go to His Word? promise there in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When you are making a decision, when you're looking for God to direct you and guide you, how do you tend to go about it? What do we all want when it comes to a big decision in life? I think we we all are looking for an audible voice, a, a writing on the wall, like, God, just tell me, right? There was a man in the church that I grew up in who had dreams all of the time. And I remember standing next to my dad, as he was greeting people, my dad was a pastor, so he was greeting people at the door on the way through, this man would regularly say, Pastor, i got to call you later, I had a crazy dream, you got to help me with it. And I remember overhearing my dad on the phone with this man saying, Pastor, you got to hear my dream. And he would tell him this crazy dream, and the dreams were crazy. But then he would ask him, every time, God, Pastor, what is God trying to tell me? And my dad, every time, would answer the same way. Brother, God isn't trying to tell you anything. God has already clearly told you everything that you need to know, and it's right here in the Bible. Read it. Go to the Bible for direction and guidance. Don't look to your dreams. You see here that guidance comes from God as we trust him with all of our heart and don't lean on our own understanding. In other words, God guides us as we go deep into his word as we begin to understand more of who He is and of of the world that He's created and of the life that He has for us as His people. And the more we delve into His Word, He promises to guide us. The more that we trust Him, even more than we trust ourselves, He will lead and guide us. And we will have lives that are refreshed and encouraged. As you think of these commands to trust the Lord with all your heart, to listen to His Word and not to be wise in your own eyes. Remember back with me to the very beginning, to what happened there in the garden when the first sin happened. Do you remember the original creation? Everything was perfect. God created all things and all of it was good. He created the man and the woman in His image to know Him, to love Him, to walk with Him. He put them in the garden, that perfect paradise where they could walk with him and hear his voice, where they could enjoy a relationship with him. And he gave them wonderful commands and good work to do, but he gave them one limitation. You can eat of all of the trees in the garden. You can enjoy all of this creation. But there is one tree that you are not to eat from, that you are not, that you are not to go to. One writer, in talking about the temptation, says this. He says, here in the Garden of Eden, the biblical story quickly turns to the temptation. He says this. Here we see the serpent suggesting to the woman, as he begins asking her questions, that God really does not reveal the truth when he speaks. As Satan began to tempt the woman. He was actually questioning the truthfulness of God's Word. Now listen to this. What Satan was doing was accusing God of lying. And the serpent was sowing seeds of the most damaging idea that a person can have. What is that idea? That God's interpretation of reality is deliberately falsified. That He intentionally tells us things that are not true. And the implication is that God cannot be trusted. And the invitation is thus given by the serpent to the man and the woman to begin the process of understanding reality from a purely human-centered point of view. The serpent suggests that the humans have to decide whether God speaks to them out of love or out of hatred. And their decision, the decision that's proved through their taking of the fruit and eating it, is a decision. They have decided that God has not been honest with them about the true nature of things. And in other words, they take to themselves the final role, the final authority in deciding what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what, what is evil. And from this point on, rebellion against the authority of God's Word is the hallmark of human sin. You see at the core of human sin... The sin that began there at the beginning and has continued on through all of Adam and Eve's children, including you and me. The sin there is to reject God's Word as true and to question God and to assume that He's lying to us and that He cannot be trusted. At the heart of all sin is to look to ourselves for truth and to look to ourselves as the ones who can decide what is good or bad, what is true or false. This sin, the Bible says, is worthy of judgment. And God condemned the man and the woman. He cast them from His presence. He put them out of the garden. And He punished them with death, a physical death that began the process, but that was only a picture of the much deeper spiritual death that had occurred. They had now been separated from God. Eternally separated from Him. But the the wonderful thing about the Bible is that the story doesn't end there, though it should. The story doesn't end with God rejecting His people, but it actually is then the beginning of a story, the story of redemption that takes up the rest of the Bible, and that takes us all the way to the end of time when... In the book of Revelation, we see through the Lamb, through Jesus, God eventually reunited with his own people in paradise forever. Now, how does this happen? Well, it happens through a person named Jesus. The wonderful thing about the New Testament is that clue number four to interpreting Proverbs, we must read Proverbs through the lens of Jesus. Clue number four, we must read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Because in the New Testament, the Gospel writers point to Jesus and call him the wise son of Proverbs. So turn with me really quickly to Luke chapter, three, Luke chapter 2 and look at what the Gospel writer Luke says about Jesus. He says in Luke chapter 2, that he is the son who perfectly keeps the covenant. His parents bring him to the temple in chapter 2, and they perform everything that is according to the law of the Lord. And then we see in verse 40, Luke 2, 40, that the child grew and became strong. And look at the language here. Luke is quoting Proverbs 3. Verses 3 and 4. It says the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then he quotes at the end of chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see, Jesus is the wise son of Proverbs. Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfills all of these commands in terms of wisdom. We see in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, that at the baptism, the Holy Spirit comes and fills him. And the Father says this, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He has perfect favor with his Father. And then he follows the leading, the guidance of his Father. And through the Holy Spirit is led into temptation. Out in the wilderness. And we see the garden repeated. But yet this time as Satan comes. And begins to sow seeds of doubt. In the heart of Jesus. And begins to question God's goodness. And God's kindness. And God's truthfulness. What does Jesus do? Well he shows that he has written God's word on the tablet of his heart. He shows that he has meditated and memorized God's word. And when the temptation comes. He doesn't listen. He doesn't disobey. He doesn't seize things for himself. But he repeats God's word to Satan. It is written, it is written, it is written, showing perfect trust in his heavenly Father. Jesus is the key for understanding Proverbs. He is the one who perfectly obeys these commands. But the remarkable thing is, while he perfectly obeyed these teachings and commands, while he perfectly embodied absolute wisdom, did he receive long life? No, his life was cut short. Did he receive peace in this life? No, he didn't. Did he receive wonderful popularity in his life? Favor within, with, with men? No, he was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was called all kinds of names and accused of being a bastard child, accused of being of his father, the devil, accused of being indwelt by Satan himself. Did he receive healing to his flesh and refreshment to his bones? No, he in the garden sweated drops of blood and groaned in pain as he was about to face the wrath of his father. Though he was obedient, all of the promises of blessing he didn't receive in this life. He received the opposite. And why? So that you and I could receive those blessings. In this life, no. In the next life, he went to death and suffering through the leading of his Father so that you and I could receive eternal blessing through a relationship with him forever in heaven. If you're here and you're not a Christian... Realize this. Jesus is the one who is perfectly wise. The wise son who followed all of these commands perfectly. But the opposite of these blessings were true for him in this life. So that in the next, we would with him, his people would with him enjoy eternal blessing forever. Let me encourage you. Do not seek your final happiness in this life. But realize that in a relationship with God, you can have everything that you've ever wanted. And those things will come as blessings offered to us that we can have for all eternity. That's section number one, blessing. Much more quickly, section number two, money. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. More shocking blessings offered to those who are Faithful with their money. Here, the, the writer of Proverbs references the first fruits. The first fruits were a, a list of commands and even a festival in the Old Covenant. They happened at the harvest time and they happened at the beginning of the harvest. And what happened at the time of first fruits was for those of you who don't have an agricultural background, at the beginning of the harvest, God's people were to, be, were to bring the very beginning of their produce as a gift to the temple and to God. And those gifts were then given to the Levites and to the priests who served God in the temple. In other words, what the command was from God was, yes, you've been working all year long to plant seed, to fertilize that seed, and to bring that seed finally to a harvest. And though you've been spending months doing this, do you realize that I, God, am actually the one who's been providing for your needs through this harvest? And what the first fruits required was for God's people to trust him, to provide, and to demonstrate that trust by bringing the beginning of their harvest to God. Now it's our temptation as humans to trust God, but to be a little nervous about trusting him, to want to weigh our options, to want to maybe hold some things back for a while to see how much we'll actually get before we finally decide to give to God. But the principle of first fruits is that God required at the very beginning of harvest to bring the first of the harvests, the the best, the ones that you would want to keep for yourself because you've been working so hard for it. No, you were to bring these to God. And by bringing that beginning of the harvest, you are putting a stake in the ground. And you're saying, I am trusting God to continue to provide throughout the rest of the harvest. You're not waiting to see how the harvest goes before you decide how much to give to God. No, you give to Him at the very beginning. And then you trust God to continue to provide for you as the harvest goes on. Now, as you think about these promises here, they seem pretty staggering. Realize that these are situational. They're talking about promises that were made even in Exodus and Deuteronomy, under the Old Covenant, that if they were faithful... To give the first fruits, God would provide not only all that they need, but even more so, so that they could be generous to others. But also realize, clue number five, that proverbs—each of them—proverbs are partial in themselves. That is, each proverb in the whole book of Proverbs are like little puzzle pieces of a thousand-piece puzzle, and each little one shows a, a, a window into reality, but. Each of those proverbs is not the whole thing. So we should not universalize an individual proverb, but realize that they are a piece to the puzzle. And that also means that we must be comparing and contrasting proverbs with other proverbs in the book that talk about money, that talk about wealth, and together see the whole through each of those little windows. What this means is that we must read what other proverbs have to say about wealth. Like Proverbs 30 in verse 8, where... Agor says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Don't give me poverty so that I forget you. I'm sorry, riches so that I forget you, or poverty so that I'm tempted to steal bread. Or the proverb that says, better is a little bit of food, a little bit of bread with righteousness, than much plenty with sin. This principle of first fruits is repeated in the, the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is as the, the Apostle Paul is talking with the Corinthians about giving to those who were in need. The, the Jerusalem Christians had faced a famine, and they had real need. And he holds out the Macedonians to them as an example, and encourages them to give faithfully and cheerfully. And he gives them a very similar promise. If you are generous with what God gives to you, if you use the things He's given to you for the good of others... He promises that God will provide even more so that you can continue to be generous. Or in Philippians 4. Philippians 4:19, 4, the famous verse. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. It's in the context of the Philippians who had just faithfully given a gift to Paul. And that promise follows if you are faithful to be generous and faithful to give. God will provide so that you can continue to be generous. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. How are you doing with your money? Are you using your money in such a way that shows that money has your heart or that God has your heart? Are you giving faithfully to him and to his people? Are you giving faithfully to the work of the Great Commission, trusting God to continue to provide for you in the days ahead? Or are you holding back? And has money gotten into your heart? That's point number two, money. Last of all, point number three, discipline. Point number three, discipline. This last section, verses 11 and 12, is a good one as we consider the the possibility of reading this whole passage through the eyes of a prosperity gospel. All of a sudden, the passage takes a pretty sharp turn and we're suddenly talking about God's discipline, about how God brings difficulty into the lives of his people for their good. Look at verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the Son in whom he delights. I wonder how you are with handling correction. Do you handle correction well? I was recently watching a baseball game the Washington Nationals. And their young rookie, Juan Soto, got struck out by an umpire who called a ball That was a ball, a strike. And he got so angry. He got so angry, he went into the back, downstairs into the video room to watch it again, and he saw that it was a ball and not a strike. So the next time he came up to bat, he looked over at the umpire and he said, hey, by the way, that was a ball and not a strike. How do you think the umpire did with such correction from a 19-year-old rookie? He threw him out of the game for disrespecting him. And there was a wonderful quote at the end of the game This young rookie through a a Spanish translator said, well, I just wanted him to get better. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly the umpire didn't want to be corrected. How do you do with correction? Do you embrace it or do you reject it? When someone comes to you out of love to correct you, do you embrace it? Do you thank them for it? Or are you defensive? Do you see here the, the command to not despise correction or discipline from the Lord, but to embrace it? To embrace reproof as a good thing. And the Proverbs holds out the picture of God as our loving Father, reproving, correcting those that He loves. We see here the first time in the book of Proverbs that discipline is talked about at length. It will be talked about later in the book in terms of the relationship between actual parents and children. But here it's introduced in reference to God reproving us as His children. And do you see the picture? God loves us so much that he doesn't just say nice things to us and let us go our own way. No, God loves us so much that he expects us to be holy like he is and to find happiness in him and in holiness. And he loves us so much that he even brings loving discipline into our lives. The writer of Hebrews quotes this whole section, verses 11 and 12, Wholesale. And then applies it to us as New Covenant Christians and says that God is still about the same business. Lovingly disciplining his children. The writer of Hebrews goes on even more and says, what are we to do with a child whose father never corrects him? Who never disciplines him? Well, that child is a child without a father. It's an illegitimate child. But a child who has a loving father knows loving discipline. Our youngest, Jude, is years old, and he's very busy right now. He's busy getting into all kinds of things. We're now having to begin the process of lovingly correcting and disciplining him. He will climb over any obstruction we put in his way. He will get into everything that he knows we don't want him to get into just because he knows we we don't want him to get into it. And what would I be as a father if my son were to come cruising along in the kitchen cupboards coming up to the stove where I'm cooking if I didn't correct my son? What would happen to him? He'd be in real danger. He could burn himself. He could seriously injure himself. You see that loving discipline from a loving parent is for the good of the child. It is good for a child to learn the difference between right and wrong and to learn to know loving authority. Parents, you have an opportunity with your children to show something of what your loving Heavenly Father is like. Let me encourage you, parents, to discipline your children with love and to point them to the Heavenly Father who desires His children to know what is good and to walk in the way of wisdom. As we conclude, one final clue for reading Proverbs. One final clue for reading Proverbs. As we think of our main point, The wise trust God and receive blessing. Final clue, all proverbs will be eternally true. All proverbs will be eternally true. As you think of these staggering promises, promises of long life and blessing, will those be true in this life? Often, will they be true eternally for those who know God? Always. How about these promises of favor and good success before God and men? Will that be true in this life? Often, Not always, but in the next, we will, if we know God and follow Him and obey Him, we will receive those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Will we have healing to all of our sickness in this life? Will we have refreshment to all of our bones in this life? No, but there will be a day when God will wipe away every tear and there will be no more pain and death. And these Proverbs that we see in part now We will see fully on that final day when we stand before Christ and get to enjoy with him the wonderful feast, the feast of a relationship with him around his throne forever. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, thank you for giving us such wonderful instruction and wisdom. And thank you for the wonderful blessings that are at our disposal through Christ. We pray that we would not ultimately live for the pleasures of this life, that we will live in this life as wise sons, content with your leading and guidance, knowing that our ultimate blessing and reward will come in the next. Even so come, Lord Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.